Well, we are beginning a brand new series today of messages, and uh, it's entitled Living Hope. And I just want to mention a couple of things in your bulletins. You will see uh, two items. One is uh, this uh, pamphlet, Living Hope, and we encourage you to take those with you, put it on your on your refrigerator, give it to a friend. Uh, but we want you to be part of this new series that I think is going to be very, very exciting. The other thing I want to make note of is your normal sermon notes is a little bit thicker. Uh, we've added a page to it. Normally we have just uh, one side each of this small uh, insert. Uh, but now there are two pages. And on the inside you will have going deeper questions. And let me tell you what that's for. It's for personal study following up the messages on Sunday. So as we go, through, as I go through First Peter on Sunday mornings, then you as individuals can go through a study or we encourage you to be part of a grow group. And the grow groups will be going through these questions uh, each week as well. Now, if you're not part of a grow group, they're just starting up this week. And uh, you only, if you want to do that, you can only have to make a commitment for a couple of weeks to see if you like it, if it works for you. And uh, all of us will be taking just these eight weeks studying the book of First Peter. And I, I trust that you'll uh, really enjoy that. So if you'd like to be part of a grow group and you're not signed up, you can see Pastor Brandon after church. Mark, uh, or uh, you can go to the website and uh, pick out a grow group that works for you or call the church office and we'll help you find one the right night, the right area, those kinds of things. So uh, living hope uh, coming up in uh, the next several weeks. I'm really excited about this new series. I also found as I was studying for this that it fits so beautifully in with our last series on what is a Christian. And I just want to say a note, a word about that. Um, in, in my 30 years of ministry, I've not had the kind of response we've had from this series ever before. And I don't know if that says anything about me. That says something about you. As, as we talked about some very important ideas surrounding the gospel, um, you really pressed into that. You really embraced that. You really said, this is, this is what I want for my life. I can't tell you how many emails, personal visits, phone calls from you that said, this is where I'm living and this is where I want to live. I had a, a young family just met with me yesterday morning and they've got a family issue going on. And they said, we want to make sure we get this right because we want to respond to this family issue as disciples rather than as Christians. And I thought that was so neat. And I just, I just want to thank you all for um, really ministering uh, in the Lord uh, in your lives uh, around this last series, What is a Christian? And I think this next series is going to be uh, just right on top of it. It's going to be a really good way to segue into uh, the book of First Peter. So the obvious question is this. Why study First Peter? There's 66 books in the Bible. Why not study another one? Well, the first and most obvious answer is it's short enough to do in an eight-week series before the holidays. So that's one reason. That's not the main reason. The main reason is this. The answer is that this message of First Peter is powerfully relevant in our world in 2012. Peter wrote to the scattered believers, Christ followers, disciples, to encourage them to live for Jesus in a very hostile world. We learned from our last series that the disciples were 
to capture, to transform their world through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the way that they were supposed to transform the world is with the gospel of Jesus Christ is by delivering that gospel by the delivery system of one thing and one thing alone. And that was the love of God through Jesus Christ. The way that God delivered his message to us is by loving us. And the way he wants to deliver that message to the rest of the world is by loving the world. The way we love each other, the way we love the world is what people are looking at. And when people peer into our lives, when they peer into our church and say, I want that, it's because we are loving well and we are loving like Jesus loved us. So that's what this new series continues with. We find ourselves in uh, a very unique situation. Uh, the church of Jesus Christ in the first century was very unlike what we call churches today. The word church, in fact, let me just give you a couple minute uh, Kind of little side note here. Um, I understand uh, that uh, my German was uh, made fun of after the first service, uh, uh, Laura Starr, but uh, I'm not going to say anything about that. But um, the, the word for church in German is Kirch. How do you say it, Laura? Yeah, well, whatever. Okay, I'm going to say church. And, uh, and you can even hear church in that. And, uh, but that word is not a biblical word. That was a word that was co-opted during uh, the uh, Dark Ages to describe the church in German. And then when they went to translate the Bible into English and other languages in the 13th, 14th and 15th centuries after Gutenberg invented the printing press and all that. Um, when they went to they, they took that word that had been used by the Roman, Holy Roman Catholic Church, church, and said, OK, that's how we're going to translate it, church. But the word that's used in the New Testament is ecclesia. Ecclesia means this. It's a gathering of people that have a common purpose and a common goal to spread that message. That's what an ecclesia was. So you can see over the years that we got have gotten away from the church being a movement, an ecclesia. It was never intended to be institutionalized. The church being an ecclesia, a movement to something that is institutionalized so that when you say, well, I'm going to church, you're thinking of a building. 1770 South Dobson, or you're thinking of a cathedral, or you're thinking of this or that. Now, that's not that bad, but, but what happens is that when we talk about the church today, people think of a structure. The New Testament meaning for church was a movement, a movement of the Spirit of God, a movement of these early disciples taking their faith and taking the good news of Jesus Christ into a lost and broken world and delivering that with love and with grace. And that's what transformed the world for the first 300 years of history after Jesus. So this is the kind of milieu, this is the kind of situation that we find ourselves in in the first century. These, these, these ecclesias, these small groups of people that were driven and motivated by the love of Jesus Christ, that were so excited about what they had. They were so excited they were willing to risk their lives. And many of them died. As you know, in the first uh, 70 years of the movement, 100,000 Christians were killed. 100,000 Christians, let me say that again, were killed in the first 70 years of the movement. So this was not an easy thing. But these ecclesias had the gospel of Jesus Christ, they had the delivery system of love, and they were on it. And they were in it. And they did it as best as they possibly could, and it changed the world. Well, into that context, Peter writes his letter. And in that context, there's a lot of persecution, 
A lot of persecution from Nero, from others, emperors, from other the religious leaders, because they didn't like the fact that Christianity was gaining so much approval. So that is the context in which Peter wrote his letter. He said there's kind of two worlds going on. There's the kingdom of God and there's the kingdom of man, Peter says. The problem is that those two kingdoms are at cross purposes with each other. The kingdom of man is all about power over. The kingdom of man is all about who can be on top. The kingdom of God, excuse me, the kingdom of man is all about how much wealth and power and authority and position do we have. The kingdom of God is just the opposite of those things. Jesus said it very plainly in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus said, blessed are the meek. The world says, whoa, 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 that's not true. The world says, no, blessed are the powerful. I mean, we, we live in this world. We know what to expect. No, no, not blessed are the meek, blessed are the powerful. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. The world says, oh, don't go there. That's not it at all. It's blessed are those who control their surroundings. Now, those are the ones who are blessed. Jesus said, blessed are the hungry and thirsty. No, no, no. The world says, no, blessed are the wealthy and the completely satisfied. Those are the ones who are blessed. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, the ones who have power under through serving. The world says, nope, that doesn't work at all. What really matters is having power over. Blessed are those who have control. Blessed are those who have dominion. Blessed are those who have wealth. Those are the ones who really are blessed. So we have these cross purposes between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. And in the midst of that, Peter comes along and writes his letter and says, now you're going to find that there's going to be conflict. Well, yeah, (laughs) if you're trying to live in the kingdom of God, And the rest of the world is living in the kingdom of man. If you're saying blessed are the meek, the rest of the world is saying blessed are the powerful. You're going to have problems. And remember the early church, they had no leverage. They had no political clout. They had no financial clout. They had no educational clout or religious clout. They had none of that. But into that, Peter says, you're going to have trouble. You're going to have trouble. It's going to be hard. The message of Jesus, Peter knew, was at very much conflict with the world, with the kingdom of man. In that context, Peter asks this question in First Peter. How do you and I, and he said this in Peter's day, he'd say it to us today, how do you and I live with hope in a hopeless world? How can we live with hope in a world that has no hope? Here's another way he would say it. How can you and I stand fast when we're surrounded by hostility? How can we stand up in the midst of that hostility, in the midst of that hatred, in the midst of saying, no, your message doesn't matter. Your message is not relevant. Uh, How do we stand in the midst of that? Peter's letter addresses these and other concerns. Now, before we jump into the text, let's answer a few basic questions. Okay, and these are the questions that you just kind of need to know before we look at this book as a whole. It's the kind of who, what, why questions. So let's do that. So who wrote the book? Uh, That's an easy one. Thank you. Peter wrote the book. Uh, We know that because he tells us in the first verse. Uh, Peter was a leader of this apostolic band of brothers. Uh, Peter was a fisherman. He was the type A, get her done, alpha male, who was always in the middle of things. Peter was always raising his hand. I've got a question. He was always drawing his sword. And he was even the one that was praising Jesus or denying Jesus. But he was always in the middle of things. 
we find Peter in a very awkward position after uh, the resurrection. Now, those of you that are, have been around the Bible and around God and, and, and uh, Jesus and those kind of things know that Peter, uh, when Jesus needed him the most, uh, when he was in the courtyard and the Jews were trying to try him, uh, Peter denied Jesus three times. Three times he said, I don't know him. I don't care about him. I'm, you know, he, he didn't want to be caught up in this, man, if Jesus is going to be crucified, I don't want to be crucified. So he denied Jesus three times. He felt bad about it, of course. He felt tremendous shame and guilt. But we find him later, after the resurrection, 40 days later, Jesus is on the shore of the Sea of Galilee feeding his disciples breakfast. And there we see, Peter pops up again. And here he is. And so Jesus looks at him. He has this kind of a side conversation. And he says, um, Peter, let me ask you a question. And Peter, still filled with shame, filled with guilt. What is it, Lord? Um, I have a question for you, Peter, and it's this. Do you love me? Now, that sounds like a really easy question to answer, but just think of the context. Uh, you know, it's like when, uh, when your wife asks you, do you really love me? That's a dangerous question. And that's filled with a lot of stuff like you don't say it enough and others, you didn't bring me flowers and stuff like that. So it's really a dangerous, loaded question. You know, do you love me? And so Peter knew he was in trouble here if he didn't answer correctly. And he said, Jesus, you know, I love you with all my heart. And then Jesus said, in response to that, he gave him the task of the most important thing in the world. And that is to take this message, the good news of Jesus and teach others to disciple others in the world. He said, feed my sheep. Take care of my lambs. Feed my sheep. Three times, Jesus asked. Three times, Peter, with shame, said, yes, I love you. Three times, Jesus said, okay, I've got a task for you that is the most important task in the world. And that is to feed the gospel of God to these other people, these leaders, and let them disciple others. And it goes on and on and on. That's Peter. That's who we're talking about. That's who wrote this letter. Second thing we look at is this. To whom was it written? Verse 1 tells us, uh, that Peter wrote to believers, the um, disciples who were scattered throughout Asia Minor, and they were scattered for a lot of reasons. Part of it, they were scattered Jews that had come to Christ, and part of it, they were scattered because they were running away from persecution. Okay, so uh, uh, believers scattered throughout Pontia, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And uh, these are all areas in ancient uh, Asia Minor, which is today known as modern-day Turkey. Now, unlike many of Paul's letters written to local ecclesias, Paul wrote to the church, the ecclesia at Rome, wrote to the ecclesia at Thessalonica, wrote to the ecclesia at Colossae. Unlike these, Peter's letters were to be distributed through even to the people that are scattered, not that are gathering even in ecclesias, maybe a, a, a pocket of people here or one family there. He wanted his letters scattered to, to go to all of the scattered believers because he had a very, very important message for them. And the message was, listen, I know it's rough. I know you're persecuted, I know, but I want you to stand fast. I want you to stand fast. And the only way you can stand fast is in the grace of God. We'll look at that in a minute. So uh, this was written to all of these Christians, and Peter hoped that it would circulate to all believers to encourage them and to instruct those believers who were on the front lines. Now, front lines. Some of you know what it's like to be on the front lines of ministry. That means the enemy takes a lot of shots at you, and there's a lot of stuff that's going on, bullets flying over your head. You know what it's like to be on the front lines of ministry. I had a, a great illustration for that. Uh, but that illustration came from Bruce Heimkees, from his niece, who's a missionary. 
If you want to know about what it's like to be on the front lines of ministry, ask Bruce after church. He said he'll be happy to stay till four o'clock. So, uh, you know, so ask Bruce after church. Front lines of ministry. And that's what Peter was saying to the ecclesia that was scattered. Uh, you guys have to stand fast. OK, when was it written? We don't know for certain, but a good guess is about A.D. 64. And the reason I say that is because that's when Nero uh, burned Rome and blamed the who? Christians, not the disciples. He blamed the Christians. It was a negative derogatory term. He blamed the Christians for doing that. And that's what started a tremendous persecution under Nero. It was happening before that, you know, from 30 to 64. The persecution was happening to the Christians, but not like it started here. This is when Nero, he had Nero's circus and he had all kinds of things that were happening to crush this movement. It wasn't a building. They crushed this movement. And uh, and um, so probably this was written or a little bit later, somewhere around A.D. 64. Um, Nero was persecuting the Christians after him. It was Domitian, Diocletian. So this continued up until about 200 uh, uh, A.D. So it, this persecution of the Christians lasted a long time. And that's one of the reasons the church grew so rapidly. Right. Churches grow rapidly when there's persecution, when there's no persecution. Who cares? You know, it's that kind of a deal. So that's what happened. Uh, it was written probably around that time. There's this unprecedented wave of persecution. And Peter was speaking into that and uh, saying, you know, stand fast. Hold on. And so then finally this. Why was it written? Uh, we find a partial answer in chapter one, verse six of first Peter. And it's this. In this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Now, that's just part, a partial answer. You get a clear answer throughout the book. But the bottom line is, Peter says, listen, things are going to get worse before they get better. This persecution that you know, this persecution where you're running to the hills, you're running from Dero, and you're running from the Jewish leaders, and you're running from the Roman government, and everybody wants to crush you and kill you and put you out of sight. And, and you know that? He said, Okay, it's going to get worse. Now, usually you want somebody to say, okay, it's going to get better. Peter said, no, it's going to get worse. So hang in there. And this movement, as it spread across the empire, it encountered all of this widespread opposition. Because the followers of Jesus were getting more and more popular. And this was a challenge to the power and popularity and idolatry and paganism and emperor worship of the Roman government. So on two fronts, uh, the... Christians or the disciples were being persecuted by the religious leaders continuously and by the Roman government. Christ followers in their own power became a threat, not because they had political clout or financial clout or educational clout or anything else. They became a threat because they were growing so rapidly. And so Nero said, we're going to crush this movement. Later, Diocletian said, we're going to crush this movement. We're going to do whatever it takes to kill you, to make you not care about your faith. Now, this is something that's interesting. Uh, there were some rumors after the resurrection that it was a hoax. And uh, if you've, again, been around this stuff for long, you've heard of those hoaxes. There's the swoon theory. Jesus just kind of passed out on the cross, but later he 
came back to life. Well, that's impossible because the Bible says clearly, and Josephus confirms it, the Bible says clearly that he was wrapped in 75 pounds of, of death cloths that were like plaster of Paris. So that's not going to happen. It wasn't a swoon theory. And the other theory uh, was simply that the disciples uh, grabbed his body and they took him away. And uh, they hid the body. And then they claimed that he was resurrected. Well, that doesn't make a bit of sense either. Because if people, if disciples had done that, are you going to die for that lie? Well, of course not. I mean, what, what's, your, what's the point? They had no clout anyway. They had no uh, uh, position. They had no uh, ability to uh, rule anything or do anything because of this uh, dead Savior. So why would they do that and try and have this rue that he was resurrected? It just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Uh, because in the next uh, 70 years, 100,000 Christians died for a hoax. Come on, that just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. So Jesus was alive and there was this persecution that was all around them. And the disciples said, in that, we are going to stand fast. These early disciples were hunted down. They were imprisoned. They were tortured, covered with animal skins and attacked by dogs, made into human torches and crucified. Peter sees the approaching storm and he warns them that things are going to get worse before they get better. But Peter also sees the light. He wants to encourage the scattered believers, these, these groups of ecclesias. He wants to encourage these scattered believers to stand fast in the grace of God. Now, I want you to hear that phrase again, and I want you to let that phrase just kind of subtle into your soul. Peter says, I want you to stand fast in the grace of God. This is the way he said it in 1 Peter 5.12. I've written to you, encouraging you, and testifying that this is the true Grace of God. Stand fast in it. Well, you say, okay, I want to know what that true grace of God is, because if, that's, if I'm supposed to stand in something, I want to know what it is. Peter explains that through his book, what it means to stand fast in the grace of God. So we see this great tension between Christ followers and between uh, the, the Roman Empire, between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. And to quote Charles Dickens, Dickens, who began his epic novel, A Tale of Two Cities, with these unforgettable words. And those of you English majors say this with me. It was the best of times and it was the worst of times. It was the worst of times because the, uh, the per- persecution on these believers was unprecedented. The world had never seen anything quite quite like this before, where these people who relatively had done nothing were hunted down and they were killed and they were imprisoned and they were crucified. So there was this tremendous persecution. That was the worst of times. But then he also said, Peter said, but it's the best of times. Well, how can it be the best of times? Well, imagine you're in one of these ecclesias in one of your homes It's the middle of the night because you don't want to cause any attention. You've got one candle lit. You've got maybe 13, 14, 15 people, including kids and babies, all huddled up. And you're all reading these words from Peter. And he's saying, I'm I'm, I'm warning you, it's going to get worse, but I want to tell you something. I want you to stand fast in the grace of God. And in the midst of that, because Jesus has died for your sins and you've experienced that and you've That's in you because you've experienced that. And now you are doing everything in your power to spread that message with love. You are sitting there in that group of people and you're saying, you know what? This is the worst of times, but this is the best of times. I'm willing to die for this thing. I'm willing to die for this message. This is not a building. This is a movement. 
And I believe in what Jesus did for me. And I believe that he's called me to love the world in such a way that they will peer over and say, I want that. I want that for me. I want that Jesus in my life. And can you imagine, even though it was the worst of times, it was the best of times. There's this energy, this excitement, this, I wonder what's going to happen next. I wonder what's going to happen. Are our kids going to be safe? And there's all of this. And yet, it was the best of times because they were absolutely, 100%, sold out, committed to the movement that Jesus called the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was the best of times and it was the worst of times. And that's the essence of Peter's message. Because you, as a Christ follower, you live in two different worlds. A city of God and the city of man. In fact, in verse 1 it says it this way. God's elect, stranger in the world. <laughs> right there, it just shows you the kingdom of God, the kingdom of man. God's elect, stranger in the world. Those two phrases must always be kept together because they explain the simultaneous relationship that every believer has to the world and to God. If somebody's ever told you that you're supposed to ignore the world and you're not supposed to do anything with the world but hide from them, that is exactly the opposite message that Peter gives. And that's the opposite message that Jesus gave too. You're supposed to engage the world with the love of Jesus Christ. Now with all that as a backstory, let's look at the text. And uh, we're going to take a, a section of the text each week. We won't get to all of the details and nuances. There's just not that kind of time. But what we will do is take one small part of the text, look at that in detail, and then the rest of it you will look at, look at in your grow groups or your personal study. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to uh, Living Hope, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 to 12. And this is the Word of God for the Ecclesia at Hope Covenant Church. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, there's kingdom of God, kingdom of man, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Grace and peace to you and yours in abundance. So that's the letter. These ecclesias are gathered around, candlelight, three o'clock in the morning, babies crying, and they're reading this out loud to each other. This is exciting. Listen to what he says next. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Usually you'd say, watch out, there's bombs flying over your head. No, he says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth and a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come, to you, these have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For if you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now listen to verse 10. Concerning this salvation... Peter says, what I've just talked about for the last seven verses, actually they didn't have verses when Peter wrote it, this last two paragraphs, Peter said, concerning that thing, and we're going to talk about that thing, the prophets 
who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, searched intently and with greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them, the prophets, that they were not serving themselves, but you. Peter talking to the Ecclesias, Peter talking to us, the Spirit talking to us today. To you, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel uh, to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even angels long to look into these things. Now, that's the end, ending of that section, that text, the first 12 verses. But let me close by saying this. At the end of chapter one, you'll hear and you'll hear this time and time again throughout the series. The grass withers and the flowers fail, fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. So that's the word of the Lord for the Ecclesia uh, gathered at 1770 South Dobson in 2000. And 12. So let me ask you one question. This is the question that Peter would ask, and it's this. What is this living hope? If this is such a big deal, if this is such an incredible salvation, a great salvation, Peter calls it, if this is such a big deal, what is it? Well, Paul, excuse me, Peter kind of ticks off several things in that text that we read, in the middle part of that text. He says, this great salvation, let me tell you, I'm trying to explain it a different way. Peter said, I'll come at it from several angles, maybe you'll get it. It's this, it's a new birth, verse 3. It's an inheritance, verse 4. It's salvation, verse 5. It's the goal of your faith, verse 9. This living hope, Peter said, is the best way I can describe it is this. God wants you to experience life forever. And the way that you experience life, and I'm not talking about just living, breathing, I'm talking about abundant life. And the way that you experience life forever is by having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ who died on the cross for your sins. And Peter goes on later in chapter 3 and says, what I'm talking about is Christ in you. This living hope, this great salvation can be reduced down to this one phrase. Christ in me, Paul said in Colossians 1.27, Christ in me, the hope of glory. So this amazing living hope, this thing that you stand fast for, this great salvation is narrowed down to this one idea. You can know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, and Christ will live in you for all eternity. Okay, now, people call that salvation. They call that being born again. They call that new birth. They call that conversion. They call that receiving Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. All of those phrases are different nuances of this one thing. God says, I want you to know something and it will cause you to live when you before you died. I want you to know something that will shed light that before was darkness. And that is this. That living hope is Jesus Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, Peter said, that's the best and most poignant way I can share that with you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Peter, 1 Peter 3.15 says it this way. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. In your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Jesus Christ comes alive in you by his spirit. He rescues, delivers, saves, preserves, glorifies. All of that is in this phrase, living hope. Salvation for you. So the next time you hear some of these phrases, born again, salvation, knowing Christ, all of those things, let them all kind of kind of come into one formation for you, one idea, one thought. This living hope is simply this. Christ in you.
by faith, the hope of glory. I love what Peter does in this. When he says, if you want to know how to stand in great times of persecution, he said, I'm providing for you that one thing that will cause you not only to stand, but that one thing that will cause you to live forever. And that's called the salvation of Jesus Christ. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. To be born again, born in the flesh, born of the spirit. To have eternity is assured, he says in verse 4. You have that eternity assured. Um, Jesus said that you can know, not just salvation today, but you can know that you're saved for all time. And that by faith, but as many as received him, to them give you the power to become the children of God. All of this is formulated and coagulated and just brought down into this one beautiful idea. But in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. First Peter 3.15. Now, these are only a few of the hundreds of uh, ways that God wants us to know and experience the good news of Jesus Christ. So let me share with you uh, what uh, the rest of this uh, text says after we've read this. Peter says, this great salvation, this thing that you can't quite believe, it's so amazing, this idea that Jesus can live in you, that God, the God of the universe can live in you through his son Jesus, this great idea, this living hope, this thing that you stand for, uh, let me explain it a little bit further, Peter says. And he says, let me explain it by telling you three things. And that's where we come up to 1 Peter 1, 10 to 12. Here it is. Concerning this salvation, Peter says, the prophets who spoke the word of grace that was to come to you searched intently and with greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Now, let me just pause right there and say this. What's Peter saying? This is what Peter's saying. Peter said that way back, hundreds of years ago, and the prophets that he's referring to are the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Obadiah, Habakkuk, all those cool names that we like to say because we sound smart. And, and all those, and all those, those, those prophets in the Old Testament. He said all of those guys, God gave them this image or this vision of what he was going to do to save people. To save us from our sins. Because we can't, if we, if we have to take responsibility for our own sins, we're going to die. The wages of sin is death. Okay, so how am I going to help my people not to die? And God said, I know what I'm going to do. This was the logos. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to provide a way and I'm going to do that myself. I'm going to go get into a body, go to the earth. I'll be the son of God and I will die for their sins. And so so this idea, the prophets, they weren't clear about it. God would say, I want you to talk about this and that. And the other, well, it doesn't make sense to me. What's going to happen? I, and they predicted it and they said, we don't know what's going to happen, but it's amazing and it's salvation and we're not quite sure about it. But that's what the prophets would say. I want you to prophesy about this amazing salvation. OK, so predicted by the prophets. Now, there were 300 prophecies in, in the prophets that uh, talk about Jesus birth, life death and resurrection. 300. Uh, and all of those were done between six and 800 years before Christ. Okay, about 700 years plus before Jesus was ever on this planet, these things were talked about. Now, I wish I could kind of put all of these just in your mind and you could remember them. Uh, and, I, and I didn't want to put them on, uh, I didn't want you to write them on your notes because you can't write as fast as I can talk. But you can go to the website and get all of these. And this is just a few of the 300 prophecies 
when these prophets predicted this amazing salvation, this amazing thing that God was going to do through Jesus, this is what he prophesied. Let me just give you a few of them. That Jesus would be born of a virgin, Isaiah 7, 14. That Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5, 2. That Jesus would be born in the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49, 10. That his ministry would begin in Galilee, Isaiah 9, 1. That he would perform and work miracles, Isaiah 35, 5, and 6. That he would teach in parables, Psalm 78, 2. That he would enter Jerusalem on a donkey, Zechariah 9, 9. That he would be betrayed by a friend, that's, uh, that's Judas, Psalm 41, 9. That he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah 11, 12. Before it was Peter, that was Judas. That he would be accused by false witnesses, Psalm 35, 11. That he would be wounded and bruised, Isaiah 53, 5. That his hands and feet would be pierced, Psalm 22, 16. That he would be crucified with thieves, Isaiah 53, 12. That his garments would be torn apart and lots cast for them, Psalm 22, 18. That his bones would not be broken, Psalm 34, 20. And that his side would be pierced, on and on and on and on. This amazing thing that we call salvation... The prophets predicted. They didn't even know what it was like. They said, this, this thing that God is going to do to save the world, what it looks like now is sacrificing a goat and praying and trying to be good enough, trying to obey the Ten Commandments, and we're not good at that. We can't do any of that. And it's kind of confusing. But this something up here is going to be so amazing, so great, so powerful, that will save the world. The prophets predicted that. This great salvation. They pointed like an arrow of truth to 700 years hence. But it wasn't just the prophets. That text says that I just read 10 10 to 12. Not only uh, did the prophets predict it, but the apostles preached it. It was preached or proclaimed by the apostles. So after Jesus left, the apostles, under threat of death, under threat of punishment, under threat of persecution, under threat of crucifixion, these apostles, armed with no leverage, armed with no weapons, armed with no real um, uh, power or testimony that would cause people to be stirred other than this simple gospel of Jesus Christ, delivered by love. These apostles went out and for 300 years took the gospel of Jesus Christ and the world was turned upside down. The Roman Empire was forever changed. They no longer worship Saturn. Now they're worshiping Jesus. Everything changed for 300 years. They, the, the apostles, under threat of death, and all of them except John, were executed or martyred. Um, these people went to the streets with the good news of Jesus Christ. And the way they delivered that news is through love. Not through coercion, not through pointing a finger, not through you ought to or you should, but through the power of love. That's what the apostles preached. And 2,000 years later, 2 billion people on this planet, the name, the name of Jesus, because of this small band of apostles who are not afraid to bear witness to the truth that they had seen in Jesus and heard. And they shared that good news, this amazing salvation, this thing that will transform your life and transform our world. This ability to have Christ in you, the hope of glory. This idea that you can receive the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. This great salvation, they said, unbelievable. For a moment, all your life you've heard about salvation, being born again, all of that. If you just kind of remove all of those thoughts for a moment. And I want you to hear this in a, with fresh ears, with a fresh heart. 
this great salvation that the prophets proclaimed, the prophets prophesied. The apostles proclaimed this amazing truth, Peter says, that it will change everything. By this they will know that we are his disciples if we love one another. This amazing salvation predicted by the prophets, preached by the apostles, that salvation can be yours. And it can be yours today. There's another piece to this puzzle that's beautiful in that last text. And it's kind of a, almost, it seems like kind of a throw-in verse. Look at the, uh, verse uh, 12. And uh, in the last sentence of that passage, it says, Even angels long to look into these things. Now, that's, a, that's an interesting phrase. 1 Peter 1.12. The Bible says that not only, uh, did, uh, the, 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 not only was this great salvation predicted by the prophets, preached by the apostles, but it was um, studied by the angels, or it was found interesting by the angels. The final phrase in this text it means, there's two different Greek words that it means. One is um, to stand on tiptoes. It's like the angels were kind of like this, standing on their tiptoes, looking at what's going on. What, what is this salvation? Now, we know the angels are eternal beings. They're not like human beings. They don't have, have the, some of the same characteristics we have. But one thing we know is that they didn't have God's knowledge. They weren't omniscient, omnipresent, any of those things. But, so to them, telling Mary that she's going to be, a, a savior's going to be born in her, a 14-year-old girl, and, and going to Joseph and telling, they were messengers. And all the t- while they were giving these messages, they said, well, I don't even know what's going on, the angels would say. This is so amazing. The salvation that the prophets predicted and, and the apostles preached. This is so amazing. What's, what's going on here? Uh, so, so part of it is uh, they're standing on tiptoe. The other word that it means is they're stooping down. The same word is used for uh, uh, P- Peter and John going into the tomb to see the body of Jesus, that it wasn't there. So this idea of on tiptoes or, or, or looking down and peering in and trying to figure out about this great salvation. Angels eager to understand this amazing transformational thing on tiptoes, humbled by God's amazing grace, not fully understanding God's amazing grace, his salvation. How can it be? How can it be possible that God, the creator of the universe, can live in our hearts, in our lives? How can this great salvation, how can this be? I found this amazing uh, painting. Uh, during the Renaissance, as you know, there were hundreds of great painters, uh, Rembrandt being the most notable. But there were other Italian painters that were almost as good, but hardly known. And one was a Venetian painter by the name of Jacopo Tintoretto. Now, I know some of you gals are pregnant, and if you haven't already picked a name, take Jacopo. I, I think it's an awesome name, and nobody else has it. You know, so Jacopo would be a great name for you. So look at this painting. Take a look at this. So it's a painting, uh, Tintoretto uh, painted this of the Last Supper. Uh, he painted this in, in the 15th century. And you'll see that uh, the disciples are, they're asking, they're wondering, they're peering into Jesus. Jesus has the light around him. What's going on? Why are you going to die? You don't, don't leave us. We're just getting started in this movement. We need you, Jesus. Don't go. But Jesus said, no, but I, I've got to die because I'm going to die for your sins. And all oh, they don't fully understand this amazing salvation. But look at the angels up above. I just think this is such a powerful picture. The angels peering down at the Last Supper. The angels saying, what is going on? Why would this beautiful man, the Son of God, Jesus, why would he die? 
I don't understand. It doesn't make any sense. He was born of a virgin. He came to save the world. What is, he, what is going on here? And this whole idea that the angels are peering in and saying, you know, if you only knew. Jesus said, if you only knew how much I loved you, that I'm gonna, I love you so much, I'm going to die for your sins. I'm going to die for your sins and you're going to have everlasting life. And I'm going to take all of, all of your junk and, and unforgiveness and sin and brokenness and terrible things, all of that. And over here, Jesus has all his love and his grace and his compassion and his life and his energy and eternity. And he says, I'm just going to take your junk and I'll give you my great stuff. That's the great exchange. And it's so amazing. The salvation that the the prophets predicted, the apostles preached, the angels had no idea what's going on. This is amazing. This great salvation is available to you and to me. I don't know how to express it better except to say this. This great salvation predicted by the prophets, proclaimed by the apostles, inquired by the angels, this living hope, this thing that allows us to stand in the face of trials and tribulations, this salvation, this new life in Christ is available to you and to me. I received the gift of God's love through Jesus when I was 16 years old. And even though I failed him many times, he has never failed me. This great salvation that Peter's going to talk about now for several weeks, this great salvation is the gift that keeps on giving. It's the gift that starts today but never ends. It's the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And it's a gift that's available to you. Would you bow your heads with me, please? As we uh, bow our heads and close our eyes, I would just like to ask if, there are those of you here today who would say, Pastor Duane, I, I've never really understood all this language about born again and salvation and all of that. But, but today, something in my soul has stirred. And I believe that this amazing gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, Jesus living in me, is possible. And today, I want to ask Jesus to come into my heart by faith. And be my Lord and my Savior. If that's your prayer today, I would invite you to join me in a prayer. I, I don't want you to speak it out loud, but I would love for you to speak it in the quietness of your own heart. And that you would pray something as simple as this. Dear Father, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that my life is filled with unhappiness and brokenness and things that I regret. But I believe that this great salvation is available to me because Jesus died for my sins on the cross. And I believe with all my heart that Jesus would be my Lord and Savior today. So, Lord, would you please come into my heart, save me, and give me the gift of eternal life. And I pray this in Jesus' name. With your head still bowed and your eyes closed. If you prayed that prayer this morning, I would just love to know that so that I can pray for you. I'm not going to ask you to stand or anything like that. But if you did pray that prayer, would you just raise your hand up and down so that I can see you and I can pray for you? Yes, God bless you. God bless you, hon. Yes, God bless you. And you.
Thank you. Spirit of living God, fall afresh on us. Pray that you would move among us, Father. His hearts are passing from death to life, from darkness to light. Move upon us. Thank you, Father, for the gift of your great, amazing salvation. And thank you that you have given it to us. We pray now, Lord, as we open our hearts and our lives to the Lord's Supper, as we celebrate uh, Jesus in this very tangible way, that many of us, all of us, would say, thank you, Lord, for coming alive in me. And I pray this in Jesus' precious name. And all of God's children together said, amen. Amen.